Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 as we continue through the book of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then I'm going to pray for us again. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one in the Welcome Center that is outside as a gift to you, and the verses will be up on the screen, but let me read. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Let me pray. Father, would you just come to you with heavy hearts and we ask that you would allow um, anyone who's currently in a hospital because of tragic events that took place yesterday, healing to take place, and ultimately spiritual healing to take place through this event. Pray that you would give us opportunities to be light in a world that was dark long before yesterday, and yet we can see all around us. And so would you speak to us through your word today and um, make us more like Jesus in every way? Amen. Anyone coach their uh, kids' sports teams in here? Two of you, awesome. That's less than the first service of three and makes me think we should audible this entire message and just talk about parenting. People, get involved in your kids' lives, okay? (laughs) I coach my son's sports teams and uh, have had a chance to coach uh, for the last few years, which started when he was four and we coached his soccer. Now, if you are one of the two, three of us who've coached kids' soccer before, you know that four-year-old soccer is, it's basically like herding cats. I mean, you're just trying to get them to go in the right direction of the goal and avoid having them kick the ball into the wrong goal. So you're just like, we're going that way. Like they, they're just basically there for the Capri Sun they get at the end. So I'm coaching the team and, you know, season's going well and, you know, we're progressing through the season and we show up one day for a game and the other team has the exact same color jersey as us. In fact, it was the exact same jersey that the YMCA had handed out. Two teams ended up both being all in red. Now, if you have ever been to a four-year-old soccer game, it's already, like I said, it's total chaos. I mean, they're just trying to figure out, you know, is this a dandelion here? And you're trying to just, hey, just kick the ball, kick the ball. But when everyone is wearing the same color jersey, I mean, it's, there's honestly no point in playing the game. Just hand out the orange slices and Capri Sun and let's all go home, have an hour of our life back. And so I'm watching this take place and you just can't tell who's on which team. What does it have to do with Hebrews chapter 13? Well, Jesus brings up 
one of the characteristics that we see hit over and over inside of Hebrews chapter 13, that of love. And he says that the defining characteristic that will allow the people of God, the church, followers of Jesus, to stand out and look different from the world around him is the jersey of love. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, what will, inhibit, what will allow you to be a picture to the world around you that you are a follower of me is how you love one another. That unlike everybody else who's got the jersey of selfishness and self-focus and comfort and my own agenda, you will be people who stand out from the world because you're wearing the jersey of love. And the author of Hebrews is gonna unpack some of what that looks like and he walks through how you and I are to be marked by wearing the jersey of love. Love for fellow believers, love for the communities and places and spaces around us. And he's gonna walk through four different things we are to love and then one thing to not love. If you're just joining us, we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews for the last 16 years, okay? And uh, that's not true. We've been going through for quite a minute and we are about to wrap up the book of Hebrews and cover the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now here's what happened in one through 12. There's all types of different movements and there's imagery and there's poetry and there's beautiful things that happen and there's metaphor and sometimes you can read it and go, what exactly is he talking about? And in Hebrews chapter 13, he just goes straight bullet point, rapid fire, and it's really hard to honestly miss what he's saying. In other words, you read the text we just read and you don't have to like look at it sideways and I wonder what does the commentary say on this of love one another. It's just pretty straightforward and he's gonna do that throughout the whole chapter. And like I said, he really rapid fires. So this will be part one of a two part in finishing the chapter, but as we'll see throughout chapter 13, it's almost as though, you know when you're talking to somebody on the phone and they're like about to lose cell service and they just begin rapid fire like instructions to you of like, and make sure that you do this, make sure you, you know, there's clothes in the dryer and turn that off and they're just walking through because they know they're about to lose. And it's almost as though the book of Hebrews or the writer of Hebrews is just rapid fire. Here's a bunch of different things as it relates to now living out your faith. So we're gonna cover a few of them today. Like I said, four things to love, one thing not to love. So this is gonna have five points. We're gonna to have to move quick, but we're gonna walk through and unpack what this looks like inside of the church and inside of the life of any person who's gonna follow Jesus. So verse one of chapter 13 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. What does that mean? He's bringing up as the church. Keep on loving those that are a part of the family of God. Keep on loving fellow believers. The first study we see is he says, love, you and I are called to love other believers. Now for us, we hear this and that's pretty, you know, we're used to it. But this idea of being marked by the jersey of love was so radically transformative for the early church. In fact, historians trace the reason the Christian movement exploded wasn't because they had the most money or they had the most properties or in the Roman Empire, they had the most political influence. They had none of that. What historians, secular historians, will now go and trace and say the reason the church exploded and went from this fringe movement to toppled the Roman Empire was they introduced to the world a radical ethic of love. 
That you would go in the church community in these small homes that weren't like massive buildings like today. You'd go in and they'd have these gatherings called the church and they'd get together and they would say things that were radical to that day and age where you'd have slaves and masters from the same household in this church and someone would stand up and say, slaves, you are to work for your masters though you're working for the Lord. And masters, you need to treat them in a way that honors God because you have a master. You'd see people stand up and they'd say things like, husbands, you are to love your wife like Christ loves the church and that you lay down your own life. Now we're used to that. That was transformative in the first century. The idea that husbands, you're not to serve and die to yourself and put the needs of your wife in front of yourself was unheard of. Women didn't have value, they couldn't own property. And this made the church so attractive to the world around that they just exploded how they loved and cared for one another. Historians estimate two thirds of the early church was made up of women. Why? Because it was the only place they could flock to where they were given dignity and value and worth. And we're so used to that, but this is how it was introduced that you and I are called to love one another. There's a historian, Rodney Stark, and then I wanna get to how this really is playing itself out in this body who wrote and traced, hey, how did Christianity topple? Like what caused it to be so explosive? And one of the things that he says in his book, How the West Was Won was, something distinctive did come into the world with the development of Christian thought. Because God loves humanity, Christians cannot please God unless they love one another. As God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, humans demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. When the New Testament was new, these were the norms of the Christian communities. The author says you and I are called to love sacrificially one another. Biblical love, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, this is how we know love, that Christ laid down his own life for us so that we would lay down our life for other people, that it's sacrificially serving one another. What does that look like here? It looks like so many of you that week after week, you show up to sacrificially serve in the children's ministry and you get here early and you're setting out chairs and you're setting things up and you're coming prepared to disciple, not do daycare with kids or not have a babysitting hour so parents can come in here and have a break, but to disciple children. It looks like the small group leaders that week after week pour into middle school students and they gather together in small groups and in homes to care and love middle school students. I mean, what else would drive someone to willingly choose to hang out with a 14 year old? but God's love. It looks like men and women who lead region groups every week and you've already gone through region and you're leading your fourth one, not for yourself, but to care for other people. You know what's really interesting and the blessing that happens when you live in a way that serves or gets this idea of I'm called to sacrificially serve and care for other people, other people inside of the church, you begin to experience your purpose. And when you don't, your faith doesn't thrive. In fact, if anything, it atrophies because you weren't made and I wasn't made to just consume and consume and come here on a Sunday and you hear the message and man, that was great and let's go get brunch, but to contribute and to serve other people in your life. In fact, if all you do is consume, your faith is not gonna thrive and grow. It's atrophying, it's dying. Like I said, it's one of the laws of the universe. I mean, if all you ever do is take in and you never take out, you die. Like, let's try this for illustration. Everybody deep breath on three, ready? Even the men, one, two, three. You know what happens if you don't breathe out? You die. And if you do not pour out spiritually and you're not serving, and some of you are serving like crazy and so you keep going. But some of you guys are on the sideline and you're not wearing the jersey of love and it's not intentional and you got a lot going on and you got kids, 
but the body of Christ is called to sacrificially love and serve one another. And if you and I don't do that, your faith is not growing. It's not thriving. It's atrophying. And the author says, keep on pursuing and loving one another. And then he says, another group to love. He says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, to people you don't know, to people you interact with and cross paths with that don't have the same worldview or don't have the same faith as you or you don't know anything about. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now the second part, honestly, is not really the point. The point is to love strangers that God brings along your path. But there's two interpretations because he just brought up angels so really quickly. Really, there's two primary camps in terms of how do you understand that verse. It's either, hey, don't neglect to love strangers that you cross paths with because the guy on the side of the road may just be an angel that God had there. Or... He's saying that, hey, through your faithful acts of obedience, in some way that we don't understand, the angelic realm is entertained or encouraged by faithfulness that they see of believers just loving strangers. But all that really doesn't matter. The point is that you and I are called to love believers and to love strangers that God puts in your path. Like I said, this was so transformative when believers did this in the first century that even Roman leaders and a Roman emperor and people looked at the explosive growth of Christianity and they said the reason why they're growing so fast is because they love strangers. They love people sacrificially. And Jesus and the author of Hebrews says this is to mark your life and to mark my life. What do I mean by even Roman leaders would attribute this? There was an emperor named Emperor Julian. He's the last Roman emperor and he was trying to revitalize the worship of Zeus. So let's you know, get some momentum going to bring back the glory days of the Roman worship of Zeus. And he writes a letter and he attributes the explosive growth of these Christians is all connected to the fact of how they love people that they don't even know. He says this in one of the early letters, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians. That's his way of saying this group that superstitiously believes in the resurrection of the dead. Nothing's contributed to their growth as their charity or their love for strangers. The impious Galileans, which is how he referred or his way of trying to insult, throw shade at Christians, provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. That there's this group that believes that every person, red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in his sight, and every person is worthy of value and dignity. And because of that, they introduce a new way of thinking to the world we've become accustomed to. But when the New Testament was new, it was radical. How you love and every person you've ever met, no matter what they believe, is worthy of dignity, respect, and being loved. In fact, Christian adoption essentially became the way that we think of adoption because they understood this idea. In other words, in the Roman Empire, adoption didn't happen among infants. Adoption was something that happened among adults until Christianity came around. And what was happening is there was a two-to-one imbalance of men to women in the Roman Empire because the belief was that women were just less valuable. So we actually have writings of soldiers writing home to their wife at home who's pregnant and saying, if it is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, expose it or leave it on the side of the road. And Christians by the thousands showed up and because they believed every person, no matter their background, no matter what they look like, how much financial, what family they're from, is worthy of being cared for and loved, they would pick up and care for by the thousands infants and be adopted. Adoption as we even think of it today was because the church understood this idea that you and I have been placed here to love strangers. Now here's where it's really fun just to 
celebrate men and women in this body who get you have been put here on mission. Like God put you in McKinney as a missionary. Your first and primary mission field is not in Kenya or not some other place, it is in McKinney. If you live in Allen, it's in Allen. If you live in Plano, God is putting his people there to be on mission. And just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16, you remember the verse Jesus is teaching? He says, if you follow me, you're the light of the world. And my father doesn't place lights randomly. He says, just like no one takes a light and puts it under a bowl, which is like Jesus jokes, first century style, his audience would have been like, of course not. In that day and age, every home had basically one light and they would put it very intentionally. Hey, we're gonna put that candle in the middle of the room to give as much light as possible. He says, just like you're intentional where you place lights, God is intentional where he places lights and he's placed you in the apartment complex you live in, in the school you're a part of, in the neighborhood that you live in, on the sport team that your kids are a part of to be missionaries to the world around us. And like I said, it is so fun to see how many in this body are doing exactly that through things like our neighboring strategy, where we are intentionally focused on putting and having ambassadors that serve in your neighborhood, not to draw people here, but to do events and host things and have people in your neighborhood come over to your house that may never step foot in a church, but they'll step foot in your house and they get loved and they get the gospel shared with them or to see it happening through our clinic. I mean, this is amazing. If you're new here, I'm new here too. So I'm learning about all this stuff too. And it is amazing what some of this body are doing. We have a health clinic that provides 100% free healthcare to people who are in need. Through the generosity and the giving here, in other words, people can show up and there's nurses and doctors that week after week care for the needs of physical problems in people's life so they can share and meet the spiritual problem in people's life of sharing the gospel. I mean, here's just a few stories recently. There was a guy, 22 years old, came through the clinic, thought that having a relationship with God, he needed to be a good person. The staff shared Jesus with him. He trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior, death and resurrection. They gave him a Bible and paired him with another guy. And now he is being discipled at this body. It's amazing. Another lady who's a self-described atheist, Chinese speaking, came in with emergency needs after going to the ER and not being able to pay it. She came back and came here. She now comes back every two weeks just because of how loved she feels by our team. If you're going to your doctor every two weeks, not for any physical problems, but just because like, I just like the vibes, man. It's just so, that's amazing. Another young Jewish girl, who was pregnant, came in and got to hear the gospel for the very first time, how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. She said she'd never heard about Jesus. She was told not to listen to Christians. And I could go on and on and on. And here's what's interesting about the clinic. We currently see between 15 and 20 patients a day. We could see double that if we simply had more administrative help or somebody to sit at the front desk to welcome people in. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a nurse. You don't have to have any medical abilities or even know how to put on a Band-Aid. If you can sit there and talk to people, you can come serve. And some of you, I'm just telling you, you need to get in the game. God has given you a story. He's given you life. And you're not experiencing your purpose because you're not serving and you're not sharing. So of course, your Christian faith is something that, quite honestly, it's just boring to you. You show up on church on a Sunday or this church or some other church, you contribute in the offering every once in a while, but it's not part of your life that's like, man, I feel like I'm in my mission. I experience my purpose because you're not serving. And God has placed you and I here to love people around us. 
Number three, third thing he says to love is those in prison. He says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. He says, number three, love those in prison. Now in this audience, he's talking about people who were in prison because of persecution for their faith. But the same command could be expressed of, hey, we have a call to love all people. And one area that we can love in this current day is loving people in prison. And this is another way just to celebrate how this body and so many in this body are doing that. You know, we have five different ways of serving within prison ministry here. It's amazing. We have something called Kairos where throughout the year, a few times a year, you can be a part of a four-day weekend event where you get to share the gospel with people who made decisions that resulted in them being incarcerated and they may never be out and see again the light of day, so to speak. And you get to tell them there's a God who's not done with them despite if a justice system is, that his justice system was so great, it took the life of his own son dying in their place and he wants to have a relationship with you and share the love. Your kids can be a part of this. This is one of my favorite images that I've seen this week. Look at this. This is a child writing and sharing the gospel with an inmate. He says, you can still be saved. Just follow the ABCs. Accept Jesus, believe in him, confess your sins, and remember that God loves you. You know what it does to a child when they get to serve and share that type of message? with some of the most broken in society, it deepens their understanding. It takes it from being like, just this is church is something we show up to every now and then and I don't fully understand it to, oh, every person matters. And God loves every person. And it solidifies that in their heart. And maybe you're a part of the group that is serving and to you, I'm so thankful and we're so grateful and keep going. It matters, eternity is real, life is short. People are going to hell all around us and we are going to be on mission. But to those of us who are not, God is calling you to get off the sideline, put on the jersey of love and live for ultimately the only thing that matters. Number four, he brings up after loving those in prison, loving your spouse. Like I said, it's kind of rapid fire and he just hits up different things. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure talking about sex being just for marriage. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. He brings up, not that there's condemnation or judgment for those of us who are in Christ, but the judgment communicates the seriousness to which God sees sexual sin. That it's a, just like all sin, a serious thing. But the, point he hits on is to love your spouse. So we love fellow believers. We love those who are strangers or disconnected or that we don't know. We love those in prison. And then we love our spouse. Now, for those of us who are single, the encouragement would be, man, I'm going to honor the marriage bed and I'm going to pursue purity because sex is something that's this incredible gift that is reserved for one context exclusively. And that is the context of marriage that outside of the gift or outside of the context of marriage, this amazing gift goes from being incredibly powerful for good to incredibly powerful for destruction. It's like fire. I mean, the illustration of, hey, fire is an amazing gift in the winter when it's cold and you sit around a fireplace and you're staying warm or you're out on a camp out and you're making s'mores, it can be an amazing gift. But you take fire outside of that fireplace and it is ravaging through the halls of a home, it's incredibly destructive. 
that's really what the Bible teaches about sex. That God doesn't say, hey, keep the marriage bed pure and sex is for one man and one woman because he's some prude. I mean, God is the inventor of sex. God being a prude is absurd. I mean, there's passages in the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, I dare you to read sitting next to your mom and try to do it with a straight face, okay? I mean, when he talks about Proverbs 5, that hey, would you always be satisfied with your wife's breast? Would you be drunk in love? I mean, way before Beyonce ever had drunk in love, God had that hit single years ago. I mean, Song of Solomon, you read through the book of Solomon. Song of Solomon was prevented for young Jewish boys to read till the age of 30, because it was so indulgent. It was, that's the playboy of the day. They're sneaking in to see, oh, can I read Song of Solomon here? God being approved, give me a break, that's a joke. It's not a prude, he just knows how incredibly powerful, which is why he gives this gift for the context of marriage. And I know in this room, for those of us who are married, there's, we're across the board. The spectrum would be like, man, our marriage is on the rocks. And so you, if that's where you are, I want you to know God is not done. There is still hope. You can experience healing. He can write a better story and love story than you could ever imagine. You may need to take a step of going to re-engage and getting some help and making sure you have people around you, but God isn't done. Others of us, your marriage is a 10, and if that's where you are, keep going. But whatever the case is, if you're married, you are the only legitimate source of romance and intimacy for your spouse. You ever think about that? You are the only legitimate source on the planet of romance and intimacy for your wives, if you're a husband, for your husband, if you're a wife. I mean, it's like this. In North Texas, almost entirely or predominantly, if you're going to have electricity at your house, you're going to have to go through a specific provider or utility provider that has a name. Anyone know the name? Encore, yes, everybody knows Encore because whenever the snowmageddon hits, everyone's calling Encore and their website is horrible and you can't get anybody on the phone because Encore has a monopoly on all of the power almost entirely in North Texas. Now, to the one person in here who's like, no, I actually have Garrison Electric Company, just don't email me, great, good for you. But for most of us, or almost entirely all of us, Encore is the exclusive provider. They have those rights. In your marriage, you're the only legitimate provider of romance and intimacy to your spouse. There's a lot of people on the whole planet that can do a lot of different things. A lot of things you do, a lot of people, other people can do. You're the only source of that in your spouse's life. And the author's saying, man, fight for your marriage. Pursue your marriage. It's not always easy, which is why it requires daily dying to yourself, of course. But he's saying fight to love and to care for your spouse. And then finally, he gives us one thing not to love. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I don't know that there's a less American verse in the Bible. <laughs> Everybody be fine with whatever you currently drive, wherever you live and whatever you wear. It almost feels like unpatriotic. It says, keep your life free from the love of money because God has said, and he references something God specifically said and God's promise to you and to me. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord 
is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So after covering four things to put on related to the jersey of love and loving others and loving strangers and loving those in prison and love your spouse, he says, here's one thing to not put on. Don't put on the jersey of loving money. Put on the jersey of loving people. Don't put your trust in money. Put your trust in God. Now, the ironic thing as it relates to this idea, which I I don't know that there's any verses that we cover today that are probably more important and where we are probably more deluded and more self-deceived than this one. Because we live in Plano or in Allen or in McKinney. We live in one of the most affluent areas in the world, let alone in Texas. And where the temptation is to constantly be looking at, hey, what I don't have and what they have and what we need more of and I need a new car and why didn't our house have 4,000 square feet and why do they have a mud room and we don't have a mud room, honey, we need a mud room. Uh, First service, I called it a wet room. (laughs) And uh, it's like, it's a mud room. Anyways, I don't know that there's a greater need from this passage to this body, to my heart, than this one. He's saying, don't put your love in money. Don't put your trust in money. Perhaps the greatest irony for us as Americans is we actually have a consistent, constant reminder of, hey, do not put your trust in money. Put it in God. Do you know where it is? It's on the money. We literally print it on the money. In God, we trust. We don't trust in these little pieces of green paper with dead presidents on it. We trust in God. And the author of Hebrews knows that, man, the temptation for your heart and for my heart is to get focused and consumed on what I don't have and what I need more of. And, you know, when am I going to get the raise? And how can I have more in the savings account? And how am I going to retire? And when can I retire? And how can I make more money? And he's saying, don't buy the lie. And Jesus would say, the only time God calls a person a fool in the whole New Testament, Jesus says, the fool is rich in this life, but not rich towards God. Strongest reference that we have from God saying, you are a fool if you are rich in this life and you are not rich towards God. So the author, of course, is saying, do not put your trust in money. Now, how do you, how do you not love money? Because that's, that's a real temptation. Well, one of the ways that we try to help one another do this is to make sure that we live in community where people are speaking into the purchases and the decision-making that I'm doing as it relates to money. Because the temptation for me is I'll be self-deceived and I do need a bigger car and why can't I keep up with this? And I'm so driven by comparison. So people in your life and in my life, we call it community speaking into. I don't think that's a wise decision or I don't think that the reasons that you have to have that are right or God-honoring. Maybe wrong, But one of the gifts that God gives us to protect us from living a life that candidly is just, it's a waste of a life. If you devote yourself to getting more stuff, Jesus says, you are a fool. And the problem is not having a lake house or having a boat. And I hope you have a lake house. I hope you have a boat. Take me out on it. Let's go. But if you give your life to those things, you are a fool and you are wasting your life. The author says, you're here for a reason. That's to make Jesus known in the community and places that you work and you live and to give your life to acquiring more things is fool is the action of a fool. Steve Jobs was the inventor of something in 2007 that changed the world. You know what it is? An iPhone. We got one person who knows an iPhone, two people who coach. We got work. He invented in 2007 the iPhone. Three and a half years later, he was diagnosed with cancer and had months to live. 
And he was, in the last months, attributed with writing some words that reflect how just things, in light of, despite being worth billions, everything's begun to come into perspective in a way that he had not connected before. He says this, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life was the epitome of success. However, aside from my work, I have little joy. In the end, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on my bed, recalling my life, I realize all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of my death. Treasure love for your family, love for your spouse, love for your friends, treat others well and cherish others. As we grow older and hopefully wiser, we realize that a $3,000 or a $30 watch both tell the same time. You realize that inner happiness doesn't come from material things in this world. Whether you fly first class or economy, if the plane goes down, you go down with it. Steve Jobs had no faith. In other words, this is somebody who doesn't share a Christian worldview, doesn't share the way that you see life. He doesn't have a biblical understanding of life is not found in stuff, and yet it's hardwired into the human soul to understand life is not found in how much you have. And spending your life or spending my life focused on getting more and having more and we're in the right schools, we're in the right neighborhood is a foolish way to live life. And none of those things are bad, but they become bad if they're the point of life. And maybe this morning, God is saying to you that he is inviting you to get off the sideline and to serve and be a part of living for the only kingdom that will ever matter. The kingdom that Steve Jobs says, man, it's all coming to focus. The things I thought life was about, it's never been about. And as Christians, we know what it's all about, which is taking the message of Jesus and going and love the world around us and care for those around us and spread the good news to a world that was in great darkness long before yesterday. And he has put you where you are to be missionaries, to be on mission for him, not on mission for the next ride and more in a bank account, more comfort, but for him. In 1970s, there was a shoe that was manufactured in Japan. I'm gonna land here. It was called the Onitsuka Tiger shoe. The company's name was Onitsuka, they were Japanese, and they had these shoes called Tigers. And they partnered with an American who sold these all over the West Coast. He would go from shoe store and track meet, and he was a runner and passionate about running, and he would go and he would go sell, and he sold thousands. He was a leading salesperson for the Onitsuka Tigers. Onitsuka came to the idea of, hey, this guy is selling a lot for us, but I think we could partner with somebody else and get a bigger cut of his commission, and we want more money. So they decided, we're actually not gonna partner with you anymore. His name was Phil Knight. He decided, I've been worked out of this deal. I guess I'll have to start something else. And he started a company we call Nike. The greatest shoe salesman in the history of the world, Nike has far outsold any other shoe company, is working for Onitsuka Tiger and wants to partner with them. And they decide, you know what? I'm gonna decline. Think about how many billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars they have forfeited and missed out on because of that decision that I'm not gonna partner with him. It's enormous. You gotta think there's some level of regret and leadership at that company. But an even greater missed opportunity is believers 
who, when it comes to building God's kingdom and partnering with the greatest force in the world, which is the spirit of God, for the greatest mission in the world, which is being a part of the people of God and sharing the message of God, believers who say, you know what? I'm not gonna part with, I'm not gonna be a part of that. I'm not gonna give my life to that. I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna, you know, from time to time be at church and from time to time, and I'm gonna try to be a nice person, but I'm not gonna live for God's kingdom. How much greater the missed opportunity for all of eternity than Nike and some Onitsuka tigers. And I don't think this body, I don't think many of us want to miss out on what God is doing. And maybe today all the reminder he's given you is keep going, keep serving. It's gonna be worth it. This life is a vapor, eternity is real. And to give and continue to give your life to the only kingdom that matters. And then for some of us, it is to get out of the sideline and get in the game and put on the jersey of love and live for him. Lastly, if you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus, the reason you're here is not to be encouraged to excel some more or go keep going and let's serve the city around us. The reason God has you here and you don't think it is the reason you just came with your sister or your cousin or you just randomly came with your neighbor that one time is for you to hear. There's a God who 2,000 years ago entered into this world in the person of Jesus and he gave his life dying on the cross so that any person who trusts not in their actions or what they do or what they haven't done, but any person who accepts him as the payment for their sin on that cross and his death and his resurrection is proof of that payment and stops trusting in them. Any person who accepts that will have eternal life. And the reason you're sitting where you are is because God wants you to know he hasn't forgotten you. He's not done with you. He loves you so much. He gave his life for you and that you would hear that and accept that and be forever changed like those of us who have. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.